Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a series of podcasts helping you produce performance on purpose. For more information, go to our site qedod.com forward slash podcasts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So today I'm talking to Antonia Bufulco, also known as Tony. Hi Tony, Tony, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's, it's a horrible day outside. It's raining. It's a proper summer English day. It is indeed. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about um, some very interesting things. But um, if you had to summarise who you were and what you did, how would you, how would you do that? Well, I'm a psychologist and I'm also a researcher because if you tell people you're a psychologist, they immediately think you treat people. But I work in a university and head up a department, so uh, my interests are much more academic um, and to do with research and with students. Um, but in fact, I do have a clinical interest. Um, and the area of psychology is what I call lifespan psychology. So it's about understanding people's early life experiences and how that affects their functioning later on in life. So taking the whole sort of life course. And yeah, I've worked most of my life in universities um, and I co-direct a centre called the Centre for Abuse and Trauma Studies, which um, brings psychology together with criminology. And my colleague, uh, Professor Julia Davidson, runs the criminology side. But it means that when we're thinking about child abuse or adverse experience in childhood, we can look at both the um, victim perspective, but also the offender or perpetrator perspective. And that allows us to work with a wider range of agencies, so not just psychologists and social workers, but also police and criminal justice um, practitioners. Right. And I know you you work in the um, sort of commercial context as well, because you work obviously in a university, which is an organisation itself, but you've got experience of um, not just the, the clinical side of things. Um, that's, that's right. I haven't... To be honest, I haven't really researched um, the whole issue of HR, but what I know is um, working with practitioners who, particularly social workers, you know, there's a very high emotional content to their work and a lot of pressure, um, and being able to sort of see, you know, what their work lives are like um, in relation to the, the kind of cases they have to deal with. And of course, I work in the university myself, so I can see how relationships develop. And I do know, because of my work on depression and life stress, that, of course, um, a lot of stress can be generated in the workplace, as it can in other domains. Um, but that can really affect people's um, work output, their, you know, their functioning at work, um, and you know, lead to sick, sick leave and other things which are very disruptive to, to the working environment. So what got you interested in this particular area of research? Interesting question. Um, The the very first piece of research I did was about the effects of loss of mother in childhood on later depression. And that was um, as as working together with um, a research group headed by George Brown, who became very well known for his work on life events and depression, a kind of more sociological approach than most psychologists would take. But it was an interesting mix. And I was interested in how you can interview people and find out about their childhood experience and then relate it to what's happened to them subsequently. 
Um, and in a way, I've sort of continued along those lines, but it's developed more in terms of looking at subsequent experiences in early adult life and adolescence um, and sort of taking me in sort of different directions, really. Right. And, and it's, it's an interesting area, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people in the world who believe that your early experiences shape your adulthood, which is which would be you would expect. But some people believe that they are the victims of their childhood for the rest of their lives. What do you think about that? What do you think about the fact that you can never really outgrow the, the problems you have in childhood? Oh, well, I think you can. And I think, I think most people do, actually. Um, the thing is, if you start researching or, or you know, exploring this amongst people who are already patients with depression or people who've had a lot of other traumatic experience or difficulties in you know social care then that's what you see you see a bad childhood linked to a lot of other negative things that have happened which you know are not people's fault but it's happened to them but if you research a general community sample you will find some have a good childhood others have a bad childhood but of those with a bad childhood an awful lot of them go on to survive and to be quite resilient Right. So, in fact, it's the majority who survive in the sense of not getting a clinical disorder as a result of <clears throat> childhood neglect or abuse. So, so for those who, say in a work setting, for, those, of, for yeah. those people who are depressed or experience undue degrees of stress and blame, yeah. it, blame it on something in their past or in their childhood, are you actually saying there they haven't learned a set of techniques or strategies to help them cope with whatever happened in the past? Yes, or, or they haven't had people around who can do that for them. Right. Or they haven't been able to access the people around them who could do that for them. So it's not so much of, of blaming or not blaming. It's a question of whether they've um, grown into um, a context uh, which is more stable and other people can help them more, or whether they've continued on a trajectory where the environment is... Um, um, hostile as well as um, experience being adverse. So you can very well see why adversity continues after childhood. You know, people get into difficult settings, they meet people who are perhaps not the most desirable and they don't have others around to protect them from that. But equally, there are change points that can happen sort of anywhere along that trajectory. Um, you know, people can leave home and get into some very good scenario through education, through um, sort of moving geographically, through having sort of help from people who mentor them, and, and through work, of course. If, if people can develop their a career, then they can often put, put behind them a lot of the, the disadvantages um, that, that they grew up with. So that's interesting. So what you're saying is that an early exposure to a problem childhood can make you more resilient because you've 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 solved it because you've got past it in a way. Well, that, that's an interesting one, and um, it's whether um, people can become more resilient or just the fact that they are resilient. If you see what I mean, um, as you know, that resilience in its definition implies adversity. So. It's just, you know, the way it's defined. You can't say somebody's resilient unless they have 
manage to um, get through some adverse experience. Otherwise, it's general well-being rather than resilience. To say that people are more resilient because they've gone through it is is a bit more controversial. There there is a um, a phenomenon called uh, post-traumatic growth which is, is, is becoming quite popular at the moment. I don't think it's necessarily all that prevalent, but the idea there is that people are managing at a certain level of function, for example, in their relationships or their self-esteem or their coping, and they go through a crisis, and then at the end of it, their functioning has improved because they've learned some techniques or they've tested themselves or whatever it is. Right. Um, that has made them stronger. But but I suspect that's uh, a relatively unusual group. And what we're usually looking at is people who just manage to get through it all. Yeah. See what I mean? Yeah, and collapse in a heap afterwards almost. Yes, but they, they, they've survived it. They can look back and say, well, I got through it and I'll perhaps be able to do that again. But yeah. it's not to say, oh, I'm glad I went through that. I feel so much better now. I think mm. that's probably rarer. Do you think, do you it's think, possible. Do you think there's a sort of an awareness or a self-awareness in those people who are more likely to come out the other side having benefited from that process? Or, 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 or is there some other factor that would differentiate those two, two groups? Well, in an odd way, they have to be at a slightly lower level of functioning in order to go up in functioning, if you see what I mean. Yes. So people start well-functioning, then they go through a crisis and they come out similarly. I mean, they've had the experience, they, they've done it, but you know, there's no massive increase in the way they're functioning. Um, I think that's a bit more typical of resilience. For the ones who um, grow during the experience, in, in a way the needs to... You need to be able to show there's some sort of deficit or, or less um, high functioning at the beginning, if that makes sense. Yes, so you're seeing it as a trajectory to be improved upon. But are you therefore saying that there is a ceiling of um, that you can attain and then you can't go any further in terms of functioning? Well, it, 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 again, it comes down to what the definitions are. I mean, at the basic, in terms of people who study resiliency, it tends to be avoiding clinical disorder because that's the... You know, things like depression and anxiety are the most common outcomes of a lot of the adversities that people go through, um, childhood, adolescence and adulthood. And if you go through them and you don't get depressed, then that's one marker for having survived it, being resilient. But there are, you know, other researchers who say, no, you need more than that, really. You need to see that people's self-esteem is better, their emotional regulation is better, their ability to cope with practical or emotional issues is better. And for that, it's obviously a bit more fine-tuned in terms of how you assess that. Um, but, but the implication is that, that there needs to be room for growth before the crisis. And in fact, I think even people that are resilient in terms of surviving, it can, they can still be damaged to some extent by things that have happened. But they, they manage to sort of get by really um, and it, it, and resilient people can you know I suspect that can have some negative attributes you know I, I often say resilience isn't really cuddly you know there are people who come through it who can be quite toughened by it yes and they manage but it may mean they're not quite so good in some areas like parenting or they might not be quite so good at giving emotional support because they've kind of got extra tough right but it worked for them and they got through it. So, hey, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting because actually if you think about that, that would lead to a, 
if no, I'm just thinking, you know, say a manager who survives, gets through, becomes less empathetic or sympathetic. Yeah. And then is that sort of well, you know, you've got to learn you've got to learn the same lessons. Yeah. You know, you've got to go through it yourself. I'm not going to support you or give you any help or, yeah. s- or something. And I, I can see that as a real li- um, limitation in a way in terms of a leader. Absolutely. So it, 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 it might lead to survival and some sort of resilience in the person concerned, but it might not be great for people around them. And I, I think, you know, that reminds me of, of a sort of a medical training where the idea is to toughen people up, or, yes. or the army, I guess, you know, yes. where... Um, you do, you know, you say, well, I went through it, it never did me any harm, but... Yes, <laughs> that's right, yeah. And, and that that's what you have to go through um, to, to achieve, and, and, you know, it shouldn't be like that, I don't think. So, somewhat controversially, uh, and feel free not to want to answer this question, but you often meet a lot of women at the top of organisations who have gone through the process of becoming senior execs and have been very toughened. Uh, by that process, do you think that has? Do you think that would affect their style in a similar sort of way? I, th- I think there's a sort of stereotype like that. But my own experience is that you know women who who do um, succeed in organisations are as varied as the men are. Right, so, yes. um, and I well, I don't work in a commercial environment, so it may be rather different. But um, I suspect that's not true. But I suspect that. It's harder for women who receive that kind of management when they, they're going through an organization because, you know, usually self-esteem's a bit lower. There's a different style, perhaps, of um, learning, coping, whatever, which is more interpersonal with women. So a harsh sort of management style may affect more women than men in an adverse way, which isn't to say that there wouldn't be men adversely affected as well, but yeah. women might see it as less of a challenge and more as a put-down. I see. So, so that's interesting. If you think of an organisation again, sorry, I'm hopping on about organisations yeah, yeah. today, so it's in my head. Um, I'm just thinking about an organisation that's gone through a lot of change, therefore, and it's survived a lot of change, and therefore you have people who are um, battle-hardened, as we say, in an organisation terms. Yeah. And and actually, if you're one of the, if you're sort of a person that's very sensitive, yeah. you're going to find that a very challenging place to work in because it's almost as if everyone else can do it and you can't. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. And my own view is that what you need when an organisation is going through change is the ability to stabilize the team to kind of hold them in a way and just be flexible so it's really going the other way but um, I know what you mean that um, people get cynical and toughened when they just there's lots of change going on and they feel it's out of their control Um, but I I think I think that can lead to problems later. Mm. And it's interesting that you alluded earlier so I know I'm jumping around a bit but you you also alluded to anxiety and depression being Um, you know, one of the sort of something, and particularly anxiety, I see the rise and rise of anxiety. And it's, again, linked into change, it's linked into the in the modern economy, as it were. And um, I, I just see anxiety as being a real issue. I just wondered if you've got any thoughts about anxiety, resilience, and how, how, what, how, how, what, what you can do about that sort of thing. Well, I think anxiety has always been an issue, actually. It's, it's very commonly occurs with depression. Mm. Um, and it tends to be more chronic. In other words, depression, you know, reco- you know, you can get a recovery from depression more quickly. Um, uh, anxiety tends to sort of keep going, um, becoming a, a long-term problem for a person. Um, so 
I'm not sure about the figures whether it's increased. I mean, depression has, so I guess it has increased. But I, I just don't think it's there's been much focus on it, and I don't really know why. I mean, what tends to happen in sort of psychiatry where, you know, this sort of emanates from is that you tend to find some disorders just get more prominence than others. And there's never, you know, you don't know why, whether there's a um, somebody who, who's just really good at publishing or whether there's some um, social campaign about it. So depression has been highlighted, you know, over the past in, in various different arenas. But I think anxiety much less so. Um, I, a lot of the, the causes are similar to depression. Mm. As I say, it often goes with depression. It does have um, um, sources in childhood, but, you know, that's not the only cause of it. I think one of the problems about um, anxiety in terms of either researching it or maybe the public understanding it is there's so many forms of it. Right. So depression's more or less one disorder. Yes. Having said that, we know there's bipolar and other things, but the, the most common depression is has got a, a you know a set number of symptoms. It, it usually comes on at a certain time and goes off at a certain time, and it's very easily recognisable. Um, anxiety um, comes in, in various different forms. So you can have social anxiety, you can have generalised anxiety, you can have panic, you can have agoraphobia, you can have obsessional compulsive disorder. You know, there's lots of varieties of it, and all of those overlap so I think people are perhaps a little less tuned into the you know what it what it would look like um, because it, it shows itself in these different ways mm. in terms of resilience I think the story is pretty similar to the depression one and it, it you know it's a question of good support um, a question of learning techniques for coping with with adversity um, and but it, it does perhaps link into one of the sort of vulnerabilities around getting support, which is an anxious attachment style. And that's... Um, now, that sounds great. So you're going <laughs> to have to tell me loads more about I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> I don't know if it's great to have, but no, the I basic idea I of... I see some of that this afternoon. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I lean on attachment theory in trying yes. to understand um, data and, and, and stories that people have about how they cope with life. Um, Within attachment theory, um, the idea is that you learn in childhood through your experiences how to relate to people later on. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty yeah. obvious in a way, but it's able to pinpoint particular styles and particular elements in, in the way you relate to others that can be problematic. So basically, and this was sort of John Bowlby's theory, but it was Mary Ainsworth who devised the um, child development side of it. And the styles are basically on the anxious style, which is all around fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, right. or the avoidance style, and that sort of dismissiveness, mistrust, um, keeping away from people, um, that kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, sort of um, overdeveloped independence. But in the middle, you have secure, which is the adaptive one. And, you know, that's the most resilient style. So if you can, if you are secure when you're young, regardless of experience, or if you can acquire security, which is possible through your experience or your psychotherapy or whatever it is, then um, you can deal with stress, um, stressful experience, and you can form much better relationships. And that means you have the added resource of other people's emotional support and their coping advice to help you. 
Now that's interesting because I know you talk a lot about the sort of coping mechanisms and support, but yes. just going back to that um, to that theory, what about the difference between sort of only children and people from large families? Is there a difference there? Is that or is that irrelevant? No, there doesn't seem to be. Um, it's always a complicated literature on on sibling size because you know there's so many different permutations. But yeah. only children do well actually on most indicators, as do eldests, um, and. I am not aware of research which says that um, you know your your sibling position or lack of siblings determines your style. It's much more the relationship you develop with your parents or carers, um, and of course only children have lots of contact with children outside. So you know in some ways they may learn earlier how to deal with peers <laughs> rather than siblings in the household. So I, I'm not aware of that being a major factor. Of course, conflict between siblings will be a, a big issue. Yes. So if there's bullying or, or you know, uh, some sort of conflict, then that may well affect how you learn to... Um, it's really your expectations of other people when you meet them. Right. If you expect to be clobbered, then, you know, you're going to be, have a different stance from if you expect the other people to like you. And that's not ironic in a way, because what you were talking about earlier is you need the support of others in order to engage with the, the strategies and tactics needed to build your resilience to deal with those issues. Exactly. I mean, if I was to pick just one factor in resilience, it would be support. And by that, I mean having close people around, people you trust, right. that help you, you know, weather crises. And they help you regulate your emotion. They help you feel sort of loved and wanted if your um, experience was about rejection. Um, and they sort of carry you through it. The thing is that there are people who might have such people around, but they can't access them because they don't have enough trust. Right. And they might not be able to articulate their need adequately. So if we come back to attachment styles, people who are very um, avoidant, withdrawn, they don't recognise that they need help, yeah. so they don't ask for it, yeah. because they don't, haven't noticed that they're in need, they just feel they'll do it all on their own and they'll manage it, and things they can't manage they put out of mind and don't deal with. Right. And then on the anxious side, people tend to be clinging, but also ambivalent in relationships, so they often sort of bite the hand that feeds them, and uh, feel people aren't doing enough for them. So they're not, again, they're not getting the most benefit from um, the resources that might be around. And that's, so, and that's tricky because I'm guessing in a work context again you have this situation where as a leader or manager you have a duty of care to to look at those people who you know need the help but the problem is then they're going to push that help away when you start to give that support I suppose. Yes well I mean not just in the work situation but, sure. but yeah, life, life. You know, people often talk about having support as though you can just introduce somebody who's a support figure yeah. and that will sort it out obviously you've got psychotherapy and, and practitioner help which is slightly different it's professional but um, if you're talking about you know giving somebody a friend it, it can't just happen like that because it has to evolve in the sense of mutual trust um, and the person has to be open to um, having that relationship and to taking the advice, talking, listening, etc. Now, all those can be taught. I mean, people can um, grow in that way. But it's not something that can really be imposed. And you can't assume, because people know other people, that they're getting support. Mm. 
And when you ask people, they will often um, idealize and say, oh, I've got lo loads of friends, lots of people I can talk to. Yeah. And then when you say, well, name one, yeah. <laughs> or when did you last do that? Oh, Facebook. well, I couldn't talk to them about that. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, well, they seem to be busy with their own lives. You know, you find that uh, people's idea of who they can talk to is a bit different from what they're actually doing. And, and you mentioned much earlier the idea of mentoring, and I suppose that's, that's a sort of informal process that at least allows you to, to engage with someone. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really good process because you don't have to be emotionally involved or, or kind of, it doesn't have to be that personal, but you, if you um, recognise the expertise of the other person and the other person has the task of seeing that you develop, then I think that's a really useful one-to-one -one method of developing somebody else's skills. Yeah, it's interesting. We had um, Rebecca Dean from the Girls Network uh, mm. on one of our podcasts, and they specialise in helping uh, girls from disadvantaged backgrounds yeah. uh, by providing mentors and, yeah. and they pair them together. And, and, and she reckons, and, and, and supporting your view, really, that it's that, it's that expectation you can... Yeah. And that expectation of a conversation means that you can have one yeah. because it's, it's in that safe environment and it's, it's with people who've been there before you. And I yeah. think a lot of the time, I think when you're younger, you, you assume that your problem's unique, don't you, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I sort uh, of can't remember that far back, really. But, you know. <laughs> well, but you'd be surprised even people at more senior levels, I've been surprised now I'm running a department, people at more senior levels sort of see themselves as not quite there or not... not quite good enough and, and it just shows itself sometimes in their writing or in their um, um, planning of tasks that they need somebody else you know to, to kind of authorize or, or, or recognize what, and it's like no you are the authority and, and you know especially in an academic setting you often say to people no actually you are the authority on this it's not a question of of finding out who else can tell you um, and and it's it's developing you know that recognition because it I don't know whether it's our culture or, or our institutions but people don't regularly tell other people they're good at what they do yeah they do in the states of course but it's something that we've got this sort of curse of perfectionism yes sort of yes and I, I see this on the on the on the um, on the sort of growing a pace as well and you see so many people who are sort of paralyzed by perfection yeah yeah and um, it seems to be and of course it seems to go hand in hand with anxiety Yes, yes, I think it does, that people are afraid of failure, yes. they, they remember all their previous failures and it can sometimes paralyse them. Yeah. Um, you just try getting rejected multiple times from publishers. Yes, well, <laughs> and yeah. I always tell them, no, it's fine, it happens to me too, you know, and yeah. you just have to have a thick skin and it's part of the job, but, you know, you just have to reassure people that it's kind of not personal and it, it might even be an incorrect judgment that reviewers make, you know, but you just have to weather it and, and carry on. But I agree, there is often, I don't really know where it comes from, whether it's from our educational parents or more cultural, that it has to be perfect. I was thinking this the other day about learning a language, I'm pretty bad at that. But I think I grew up thinking you have to speak it perfectly or not at all. Yeah that you didn't just need to have a bit of basic conversation and that would do. Yes, <laughs> you know, right. that, that it's an all or nothing. Um, and and it's, I think it's those faulty um, concepts that, that sometimes hold you back. 
And it is peculiar because there's a sort of there's a school of thought, Tim Ferriss and people like that, who are streamlining the learning of languages, who sort of say you really only need to know two hundred words to be able to get yeah. by in a language. And he's used this approach in Japanese, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah. And, no, I think uh, when you come down to what you need it for, yeah, I mean you're not doing any you know high literary thing in that language. You probably don't need use that many in English for normal day to day stuff, do you? So I think that's right. I think if you get pragmatic about it rather than perfectionist, which is sort of based on looking an idiot, isn't it? Is you think well, I don't want to say that because it might be completely wrong. Yes. <laughs> and rather than realizing that in a lot of cultures they're just delighted if you'll say a few words in their language because we just, you know. The whole issue of, of English being the international language, we just assume everybody else has to know it, and, and I think people can be very flattered if you use a word, few words in their language, and you know you can get by um, with probably not very many. So, and, and there is a problem of, of language tuition here, and I wonder if that's at the heart of it, really. Well, everyone speaks English. That's half the battle. Isn't it? No, I know it's class, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I regularly, when I live out in Spain, and I regularly attempt some terrible Spanish, and they just <laughs> lapse into English to spare their own blushes. I yeah. think. Um, but interestingly, what you were saying there was um, before we got uh, before I sidetracked us into <laughs> completely irrelevant bit of conversation. But it was interesting. Um, you were talking about just weathering storms. You know, just having that almost being sanguine. Stoic in yeah. the way we just yeah. sometimes have to say, do you know what? We yeah. didn't we didn't get it, we didn't win it, we weren't perfect, we weren't this, we weren't yeah. that. And sometimes you've just got to sort of get over yourself, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't want to hear that message today, really, do they, so much? No, well I, I don't know, but I think that I mean surviving academia is certainly about that. And I just think when you've done it for long enough, yes. <laughs> well, you're yeah. also hard done to in academia, we know. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, I think it's it's a sort of endurance, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, what did Churchill say? When you're walking through hell, just keep walking. Yeah. You know, in other words, just get on with it. Yeah. And um, eventually it will change. And, uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily an issue of a fast solution or doing, you know, the perfect coping. It's it's just sort of keep going. Don't give up and, and, and kind of learn some endurance, really. Now, the last thing you mentioned earlier, sort of wrapping this up with the bow on top, really, you, you, we've talked a bit about depression and anxiety and such like, but you did mention stress as well, and stresses. we've had some um, other contributors around stress, and I'd be interested in your thoughts around stress and resilience and stress and such like, um, and performance and function. What, what, what's your views around that? That's a big question, that one, Tony. Is it? Well, the, the first thing is that there's an ambiguity of the word stress. Oh, I'm so pleased you've said that. <laughs> so I usually start with that. I ask psychology students, what do you think stress is? And yes. they all talk about feelings. That's the right. feelings of being upset or worried and all this. And I said, well, can it mean anything else? And it takes them a while to say, well, it's the thing that made you stressed, i.e. the event that happened, yeah. the adversity that you're, you're dealing with, you know, the trigger. And... Um, I think it's important to differentiate the two. So it's interesting. That things I'm... that happen to you, so if it's in the workplace, a reorganization, a demotion, a promotion, a promotion you know, the things that happen to you, and then there's your response. Yeah. And, you know, both of those things can be tackled. Um, but um, if the stress is of a certain severity, then it takes a lot of sort of coping to manage it, to manage the environmental changes that happen, but also your own feelings and, and how you deal with it. Um, so the other thing is once you realise that it's in the environment and it's in yourself, you then have to realise 
<coughs> that the experience um, can be graded as, as more highly or less highly um, threatening or unpleasant. Mm. And it's the higher level ones that we're more concerned about and that can trigger a depression. Yes. And I think recognizing the extent of the challenge you're dealing with can help because then you say, well, okay, I'm, I'm not sure I'm dealing with it very well, but blimey, it's a big thing to deal with rather than just somehow thinking you're to blame or you're not doing very well, etc. So I think recognizing situations and the ones that require, you know, really big sort of difficult coping um, is important. And I think in terms of um, something like the workplace, if other people can see that people have got very difficult challenges to deal with, whether it's in the work environment or they have to know they've got lots of things going on at home, then, you know, it, it's just being attuned to that to help um, those people cope with it because feeling worried or upset or angry or whatever else is the human condition, but it, it's keeping that within check so it doesn't grow into a sort of psychological disorder because, you know, it, it's not sort of managed really. It's sort of like, a, I always think of like a sort of set of overlocking daisy chains, you know, all these different words you've used as depression and anxiety and stress yeah. and resilience, yeah. and they've all got upsides and downsides, and yeah. they're all they're all they're all a feature of each other, really, aren't they? They're all interdependent in a way, yes. uh, interconnected, and that's what's so interesting because yeah. you can you can tackle the whole by tackling one of the parts, and I think that's what's encouraging for people. Yes, but there are many parts that can be tackled, which is exactly the agency working in, in yeah. you know in, in, in practice that you can tackle how people are feeling and how they understand their situation, you can deal with the situation or you can introduce extra support and intervention to help that. You know, uh, the good thing about that is that it can be tackled on different fronts. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's that's what I was saying in the opportunity. It's a, it's a large issue because there's a lot of places to start, but the good thing is there are many places to start. So it's almost finding your point of access that's key. Yeah, and then you can have a positive cascade, so yeah. one thing's go right, and then that gives people a sort of respite, and then, you know, something else goes right, and uh, you can start to unravel in a good way. <laughs> so, so as we're talking, um, I, I know you have developed something very interesting in terms of a tool around resilience. So why don't you um, outline some of your thinking around that? And then we can talk about what we're going to do with that later on, perhaps. Yeah. Well, the actual tool is called CLEAR, which is a computerised life assessment record. And what's new about it is that it's online. So it's something that people can complete online, privately, and it will um, um, elicit all sorts of responses about what is happening, what has happened to them in the last year um, that... Um, is about change and stressful experience and negative and positive things and in a whole range of domains. Now in itself that's not brand new um, because there's an interview that's been doing this for some time called the Life Answering Difficulties Schedule. But the thing is that the interview is time consuming, um, it needs, people need to be trained in its use and how to score it. Obviously if you do an interview you need to be face-to-face -face with the other person, or at least in close contacts, um, which, you know, is difficult with people's diaries, etc. So the idea of doing it online is to get around some of those practical issues to make it more usable um, nationally, really, as a tool, both in practice and in research, and I think in a range of settings. So the idea is people, it's a secure site and people get their own individual log on, they don't use names or anything, and then they go in and, and just uh, fill in a whole lot of fields about themselves. 
and it's sort of personalised in the sense that it builds up a calendar of what's happened to you and populates it with the events that you've already put in. And it asks you at the beginning who, who are the people in your family or your close friends, etc. And then when there's a question about um, did this happen to you or somebody else, it will give you a list of the people that you've mentioned so it's easier to tick off who it related to. So it's a sort of it's a clever site, you know. It's, it's it becomes personalised with the information you put in, um, and we're we're just analysing that data at the moment it, and checking um, its reliability. In other words, if you do it twice, do you come put in similar information? And that seems to be the case. And we're comparing it with face-to-face interviews. We haven't quite completed that, but we're quite optimistic about the outcome of that. And so if and we found it is usable, so the, the, the people that we've asked to complete it um, have been fine with it. So once we've finished this and then published it, this I think could be a tremendous resource for all sorts of um, services and organisations in order to um, find out um, what kind of uh, stressful experiences people have and also because we've got questionnaires on there about attachment and about depression and well-being you know um, and what the kind of um, status of, of people of the people who work there have in terms of their vulnerability or resilience so is this something that's ready to for people to have a look at and have a go at or would you prefer them to hang on a little while longer um, it's it's at a stage where we can start piloting it in different settings. So we've already been approached by an organisation working in the perinatal field to see if they could use it to assess um, pregnant uh, women who may be more at risk and then sort of focus their intervention. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had interest from people in the clinical field who want to be able to differentiate different types of trauma, etc. So... We're putting out our first feelers for where it could be used practically, including organisations. Um, and um, I think, you know, the first tryout of it, we would help um, an organisation to use it and, and show how to interpret the uh, reports they get back from it, etc. But we're pretty confident now that it is working well. So if anyone hears this, would you want them to get in touch with you to discuss how to move this forward? or? Yes, yes, they sure yeah. could. I mean, we've got a website which describes in a bit more detail, and the website is www.clearaboutstress.net. And we can also email the team on clear at mdx.ac.uk. And we can talk about um, using this and, and whether it's useful in their agency or organisation. Fantastic. And I know we're going to do another podcast around this tool in much more depth because we're going to talk about teaming up to do some work particularly around organisations and uh, and uh, we'll be able to give a lot more detail about that as time rolls on I'm guessing. Yes, no, that's particularly the opportunity because we do, we specialise in assessment but we really need to partner with people who intervene. Yes. <laughs> we say what's the use of, of assessing it well if nothing happens so it's working together with um a partner organisation that does, you know, coaching or counselling or whatever to to help um, intervene when we do identify um, the risks. Good. Well, today, Tony, I'll just look at the time and it's just rattled past. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And uh, we've got lots more to talk about uh, the next time we hook up. We're going to talk a lot more about that tool and such like that. But thank you ever so much for this introduction to your, your, your thinking around the whole subject. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been enjoyable.
Good. All right. Then um, we'll be in touch very soon, and you can link to all of uh, Tony's details from our show notes and such like, and to link and link to that website if you're interested in having a look at some of the early information. And um, we will be back in touch soon for the second part of this podcast. So we'll speak to you very soon, Tony. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Resilience Unraveled helps you create performance on purpose. And you can find out more about us and resilience at qedod.com forward slash resilience. Or listen to more of our podcasts. You can also find out more about our courses, our webinars, and free resources like ebooks and paid for courses at qedod.com. Otherwise, we hope you can enjoy more of our podcasts in the future.